welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Welcome back, everybody, to The Near Memo. This is episode 87, believe it or not. And we welcome back the illustrious and comparable Mike Blumenthal from his fabulous month-long European vacation slash conference appearance at the Cinda event in Florence that just concluded. Um, so we've, we've had some great uh, episodes in Mike's absence with, with uh, guests, and we're going to continue that in addition to doing our, our regular commentary on the week's news with the three of us. Um, I'm Mike, if you take off. one more vacation, you might find yourself out of a panelist role. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna trade you for a couple of draft picks. I think I, I, you know there's nothing wrong with having created a world in which uh, they're created a product in which it works without me and works better without me. That's, that's right. That, that's that's right. actually a high honor. So I'm not at all distraught by that possibility. Okay, well, my my dog is here threatening to bark. So, David, why don't you lead off with your item about Shopify this week? So, so there was an interesting sure. study study by the Globe and Ma- Mail, and and uh, tell us what it said. Yeah, so it was I thought it was a really interesting uh, concept around which to build a study. Uh, they looked at the number or the percentage of stores, online stores, on various platforms, Shopify, Wix. Uh, WooCommerce, PrestaShop, a couple of others, um, that the, the sort of burn rate uh, or the churn rate of, of stores that had been launched on those platforms um, sort of over the last three years, they did a little bit of a 2019 analysis and then obviously 2020 and 2021 are you know, prime pandemic years uh, when a bunch of people were launching stores. And so they were looking at how many of those stores are sort of still in existence after a year. And Shopify was actually the lowest number uh, at 34% of all of those competitors. Uh, and the other one I didn't mention, I think was Squarespace. Um, it was actually the lowest. And I think that there's a, they sort of dove into some theories in terms of you know why this might be the case. Um, I think the, the biggest possible theory that, that jumped out here that they, that they highlighted, which I think is, is potentially accurate is that Shopify stores are basically so easy to get up and running that it's that's simple for a lot of people to try it. Um, you don't really need to hire a full-time developer to help you set it up. Um, you can get in and out for 30 bucks if you don't really like the experience. Uh, you know, you can bounce and try something else. But some of the other platforms in particular, in my own personal experience, WooCommerce um, and PrestaShop and some of the others, um, are very, very difficult to, to get started. And you probably do need to hire someone to actually build that for you. And so if you've put in this, you know, multi-thousand, if not multi-tens of thousand dollar uh, investment in terms of getting set up on a given platform, you're probably more committed to, to sticking with it and seeing if it can actually grow with you. Um, so I think that that's, poss- that's one of the theories that may explain uh, why WooCommerce is sort of the, the stickiest, quote unquote, stickiest of the the e-commerce platforms. Um, we did see that both Wix and Squarespace were sort of directionally closer to uh, to Shopify's churn rates, and both of those platforms are obviously kind of almost as easy, if not easier, to set up than than Shopify. So that's kind of one 
interesting, interesting data point there. The other one is my personal, uh, this is, this is not backed necessarily by data, but a possible theory, um, for what, for the, uh, sort of relative success of Shopify still, even though it has this quote unquote, incredible churn rate is that the merchants that stick around on Shopify, the thir their 34% merchants who do stick around are likely to be very, very serious merchants that have, have chosen Shopify as a growth platform. Um, you know, there's some data here around Shopify plus that says that it's, you know, performing, uh, what 70% better or something in terms of churn rate than, than typical Shopify, normal Shopify customers. Uh, we've seen Shopify go or try to go a little bit more enterprise with the, the, uh, Clavio partnership, um, that they announced a couple of months ago. So I think that they, they're, they're probably starting to focus more on the 34% of customers, uh, who are sticking around, who are doing, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars on the platform, as opposed to, you know, somebody who's on Wix or Squarespace is probably, if you're doing $10 million on a Wix e-commerce store, you know, God help you. Um, and the, the, the flip side of that is that the smaller merchants who have invested a bunch of money in, in WooCommerce, for example, are not as likely to sort of switch away. So that's kind of my, uh, sort of explanation as to why this is. Again, I thought it was a super interesting story, a uh, very interesting study uh, in terms of the of actually something to look at. Um, I don't know that it's sort of the, 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 the story had a little bit of sort of doom and gloom around Shopify, which I don't necessarily uh, take away as a definitive, uh, as, a, as a definitive takeaway. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the superficial take on the story is that they don't disclose this data. We're, we're, we're exposing it for the first time. Oh my God, look, 70% of their customers are churning out after a year. You know, I mean, I think the, the, the analysis that you just gave is, is right. There's a lot of, lot of layers here and shop Shopify, I think will be under some pressure now based on the existence of this to, to kind of tell a story around retention that they haven't been in the past. They've only talked about top line growth. So we'll see. Yeah, and I think the, the more interesting story would be, you know, some sort of bell curve of revenues of stores that have right. been around for a right. year. Right. Right. Revenue per store. Right. Mike. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that was, that was one question I was going to ask. Is there any, it, like total volume is probably a better indicator than almost any other indicator here. I, I was I, curious I think about they, market I think share. They, I think they disclose gross merchandise value. But I'm not sure off the top of my head. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, and the other question was just crude market share. How did that pan out between these different platforms or these different products? Well, that would be relatively easy to pull with built with data, uh, just in terms of the, the volume of stores on each of these. So for a later episode, perhaps. Possibly. Yeah. All right, so now my dog has calmed down, and uh, we, we can we – can, uh, Should we try we, a few dog whistles here, see if we can get them no, excited? Please, no, please, please don't. Don't do anything. Um, so, uh, it, you know, uh, in the past, in the 2019, 2020, Rand Fishkin did these zero-click studies, which are quite widely cited and circulated, uh, in which the argument is Google is – capturing a larger and larger share of clicks that would otherwise go to third parties, to websites. And the most recent one in 2020, I believe, was that 65% of search queries on Google don't result in a click. And that has you know, been a topic of discussion and also a source of criticism of Google. Uh, SEMrush just did a study that was um, 
uh, written up by Marcus Tober. He may have supervised the entire study, and we're going to have him on to discuss it in a future episode. And what they found is something much lower. On the desktop, they found that zero-click search was only 25% of search results, search, search, search turning into no-click results. I don't know how to say this in an elegant way. And on, on mobile, it was like 17.3%. So it was a much, much lower percentage of search queries that didn't result in a click to a third-party website. And they also had other categories of clicks paid, organic, um, clicks on other Google properties. And then they had a category, which was essentially query refinement, where somebody was doing a search, they didn't see what they liked, they did another search without clicking. So these were the things that they looked at. They also looked at duration between actions. So you do the query, and then how long before somebody makes a click or takes a subsequent action. Uh, and they did this both for desktop and mobile. And there's there's some interesting other findings in the in the study. We we wrote it up, but you know go look at it. Um, I, and a lot of people are already aware of it. And as I said, we'll have Marcus talk about it in more detail. Local is really not a feature of the study. They they do talk about clicks on Google the Google Maps tab, and those are relatively low. But there's really no discussion of the local pack or you know anything else tied tied into into local but it was just very interesting to see this alternative view of zero click and it presents a much more complex picture of user behavior than what the spark toro data at least in the write-ups were were um kind of talking about david i see you want to say something about it no just gonna, obviously this is a major area of potential antitrust uh thrust moving forward. And so you, you do wonder, I mean, the study is much newer than, than SparkToros. And you wonder if Google has sort of been trying to actively reduce the, the amount of zero click searches that they can present a more compelling case to regulators. Uh, that's one possibility. The other is that we are seeing, um, there's been reports at least this week uh, from folks like Dr. Pete of Moz that the number of packs is going down. The number of people also ask results is going down that these, a lot of these SERP analysis tools are reporting this. So it could also be that Google, you know, just really has been removing these things um, re recently. Um, and the second thing I would say is that it's always important in my mind to look at the, the data set of keywords that are being analyzed here. And it's possible that there's a much lower percentage of local intent terms than the sort of typical aggregate view, which is somewhere in the 30 to 40% range, depending on which, uh, which off the record comment of Google you listen to. So um, I think that those are two possible explanations, at least as they relate to local. The other possibilities on local is, well, part of it is that he can't, the study couldn't see phone calls. Like on the desktop, people just pick up the phone. That isn't visible anywhere unless you're using call tracking. It, and then it didn't seem like he was tracking phone calls from mobile, although it seems like it's a click that should be trackable. And the other is that he wasn't looking, he's looking at clicks, not conversions. And so in the end analysis, you care about who buys from you, not anything else. Studies I've done, studies Joey done in local show 80% or so of conversions are coming off GBP, often directly off GBP, not even coming to your website. If you count your website, it ends up being 95%. So it really depends on what you're defining as the critical action at the end of this whole project. A click to me is not a particularly 
meaningful metric in the greater scheme of commerce. But I think David, I think David is right. Is that this? This you know, Rand did this study sort of in the context of Google is a a, a kind of a nefarious monopoly argument. Um, I'm not sure that Google is is. I mean, we'll. I haven't looked at the Dr. Pete analysis, but I'm not sure that Google is dramatically changing the SERP to in, in anticipation of antitrust. It may, it may be. I mean, it's all about self-preferencing, right? I mean, that that's something they got stuck with in India. Um, they had to pay a big $125 million fine or something like that. And so I, I think that they are sensitive to that issue. But if, you know, as we discussed previously at the search on event, so much of what they were talking about was local, local products, maps, um, you know, and, and, and so it would seem weird that they're siphoning away some of that in an effort to appease regulators, but it's possible, I suppose. Well, and the other thing is I highlighted that, and by the way, Dr. Pete, to my knowledge, hasn't yet published actual data around this, but he just put out sort of, I won't call it a tweet storm, but a series of tweets suggesting this was happening. Um, the other thing that I, I want to say, I tweeted about this maybe a week or two ago, that it seems like Google's experimenting with results, local results that are informed by the knowledge graph, but the, the click-through actually goes to a third-party destination. Um, and so I'm not saying, I don't, I doubt, at least I hadn't seen that ex experiment until the last couple of weeks. So I doubt that that data is in the set that, uh, Marcus Tober was looking at, but, yeah. um, I, I do think Greg, that they are, as you said, aware of this issue, they're sensitive to it. And I'm guessing that there are a lot of experiments that are happening that try to, uh, preemptively, <laughs> if, if, if it goes, if the decision goes against them, that they have a ready-made solution in place that is least bad for their advertising business. Well, one thing we talked about uh, in the green room ahead of this was, you know, th there's there's arguably three categories of zero-click search in this SEMrush study. The query refinement where you're not clicking, but you're inputting another keyword or keyword string. The, um, the, the click on another Google property and the, the, the true zero-click uh, category that they have, and so if you add all of those up, you get pretty close to the to the Spark Toro number, which I thought was pretty interesting. And we'll talk to Marcus uh, about that when we when we uh, interview him. Um, so let's move on to the third and final item today, which is the triumphant return of Mike Blumenthal and his experience in Europe with Google TripAdvisor and Apple Maps. So, Mike, well, so our trip was broken up into three roughly equal segments. We biked in northern. England and Scotland. We drove a rental car in Portugal, and I walked a tremendous amount in Florence and Siena. And in all of those situations, needed maps. And I mean, and, and in Scotland, Apple doesn't have biking maps, uh, but Google does. Although Google's biking maps were problematic, they sent us on wrong turns. They weren't. I mean. Uh, biking route one, which goes from Newcastle all the way to Edinburgh is the preferred route. And Google had trouble following it because it often goes from the road to a private farmer's property to some public right of way to, you know, back through the fence. And as long as you close the fence, you can go across, you know, it's a very confusing road, but Google was the only one that had any help with it. Um, in Portugal, where we drove, there was such latency in Google that we would tend to miss 
clover leaf turnoffs. We switched to apple and had a great time. And in walking directions around Florence and in public transportation, which we took after Florence, Apple did a great job. I mean, truly a great job. And so where we ended, what I ended up doing was when I'm looking for a hotel or a restaurant, I used Google. And then I would take the data from there and input it into Apple to get the walking directions or the driving directions or however I was going to get there in both Portugal and Florence. So it's interesting to me that neither is an optimal solution at this point. The interface on Google was really hard to, it just, and it made interesting geographic mistakes. I'm in Florence. I'm looking for Siena. I'm not looking for the province or the county of Siena. I'm looking for the city of Siena. And yet Google would surface the, the geographic area and not the town. It's like, what good is that? That's a useless search result, which happened more than once to me. It's like hard to understand, maybe based on some sort of relevance or something, but it's like, totally useless. So it's just interesting. And Google's POI in hotels and restaurants was so good that I ended up not using TripAdvisor at all and had really good luck with their hotel finder and getting a couple hotels, and really good luck with their restaurant stuff. So it's just fascinating to me that they, that there's, that their user interface has gotten clunky and hard to use and their POIs are so much better. One interesting thing with Apple in Florence, they have these city guides now. And in Florence, they have these audio guides. And I did several paid walking tours in Florence, saw David's, uh, you know, went around and saw the scenes, the sites. But then there was this sort of hidden his working class history of Florence that both I and my wife did separately and was very interesting, very fun. Uh, sourced from a third party um type through, of thing a, that, through apple maps through, through apple maps, maps. that's so it was like part of the city guide um so you know i mean for the most part we probably spent uh, navigationally 90 percent of our time in apple maps and when we're looking for restaurants or hotels 90 percent of the time we spent in google maps so was, so was the issue, the main issue with Google Maps, The uh, you said the UI, UI was a little clunky, but Clun was it the... Yeah. It depends on what you were doing. The the UI is clunky. The latency was bad. On my that's, data that's what I was going to ask. Was the latency the major issue? When you're driving latency in a foreign country and you can't read the road signs, latency is a huge issue. And it was very bad with Google Maps in Lisbon, which is where it was critical. It's like once you get out in the country... Six, you know, six one half does the other. You know, latency is not a big issue because you can see that you, you know, got the more time coming up, more right. time to make exactly. to, to make decisions. So, but in the city of Lisbon, I felt it was unusable uh, as a solution because. Well, so why why do you, what's what's the explanation for that? Why would Apple be so much better? Is it because it's more native to the device? You think um, Apple uses a vector based, and Google, I think, is still using a graphic based. Uh, display, I think could be. I don't know if there's other issues involved, but it, it was a big issue when, when we were driving. Um, you mentioned the road, road sign, uh, you know, when you can't read the road signs. I had a similar experience in Ireland earlier this summer, uh, particularly in the, I don't even know how you pronounce it, Gaeltacht, where most of the signs are still in Irish. Um, the, the issue that I had with Google Maps, and I was in offline mode because I didn't do a data plan, but I was pretty vigilant about looking at turns and that sort of thing. Uh, and the, there isn't the same level of consistency with how things are named uh, in Ireland. And I'm 
presume in Scotland and England, uh, you had the same situation. And so even though Google would say, turn right on the N6672 or whatever, uh, that wasn't actually what you saw on the, you know, right. as a as a yeah. user. Um, and I think that that is a big issue. And if Apple can solve, can solve that, I would happily switch to it on my next my next golf vacation to Ireland. So Apple was better at uh, locale names than Google was in that regard, that you would you would look for a Google result and it would give you some cockamamie name. Um, the, uh, yeah, there was an, another thought it raised. Oh, well, just one that the, because the iPhones now support eSIMs, it was, it was a trivial, they didn't have to swap out a SIM to get a data plan. And we kept our AT&T as a backup phone line if we needed a phone number, but we used the data plan 99% of the time and they were quite cheap. And you're able to get a pan-European data plan on the eSIM through an app and it was super easy and reasonably priced and it worked, you know, UK, uh, England, Scotland, Portugal, and Italy, which was refreshing because before I went over, it was kind of confusing. Do I need to get a SIM and do I need to get Google Fi? How do I, but in the end, you don't really need, we didn't need phone calls that often. So we only put, occasionally put one phone on to AT&T. Yeah, you need, you need data. You need data. You need data. That's right. And the data plans were cheap and easy. And with an eSIM, you just install both of them. It worked really well. So that was interesting to me. So anyways, Apple's made huge strides and it works really well. I was going to ask, did you, did you use any sort of augmented reality features, especially while you're on these walking tours in, in Florence or maybe? Yeah, like Spain? the live the live view or anything? I like did that. not. No, Google yeah. or Apple doesn't have them. And I, I'm not a big fan. Google's makes me nauseous. I think they do now. I think Apple actually. They do on certain cities, but none of the cities yeah. I was in. Yeah. Uh, That's not, interesting. Like, you think they might start with a place like Florence, which is small and has a lot of. Right. has a high density of interesting stuff so yes you would think so but it wasn't there yet so my my experiences with live view in europe which i haven't used in a little while um i think mostly in the uk and this was back closer to its introduction we're, we're just not very good you know it's it was sort of it was hard to get a fix you have to move the phone and it just was kind of a clunky clunky experience you know it's right. sort of helped me in a couple of situations get oriented to the direction that I needed to go, but it was just ultimately not that great, you know, no faster than just walk, starting to walk and seeing how the map reacted. Right. The other, the other point about walking would be that with my Apple watch, I was able to put my phone away, which is a little bit of a relief. You don't feel quite as touristy walking around with a phone, you know, trying to figure out left, right, or center. And it worked very well. You still look like a little bit of a crazy person, though, if you're checking your watch every five yeah, seconds. <laughs> true. And I am a little bit of a crazy person, particularly when I'm traveling. I get a little neurotic. But uh, it was better than having a phone out. So that worked well. Although Google Maps now works on the watch again, I discovered. So reasonably well. So there you have it. I'm back. All right. I'm safe. I didn't get COVID after a whole month of eating out and going to conferences. So that's good. That's awesome. Are they still checking... Uh vaccination cards in restaurants um not in restaurants cinda was conscientious they checked vaccine status gave everybody uh test kits asked everybody to test did not require masking but if they're they then asked everybody to report back within three days their health status and apparently several people did report back that they got covid but they photographed the whole event so if 
you sat anywhere near that those people during the event, you got notified, which I think is, you know, it was relatively unobtrusive and yet reasonably effective at, I thought, at health control. So. Yeah, and and Google Maps has now removed the COVID information. They have moved, removed the COVID information. Day number nine hundred and sixty six. I looked up from my start date, which was March fifth, twenty twenty. That's when I realized I wasn't going to be speaking in Germany that year at the SMX conference. I was going to cancel my flights and stay home. That was March fifth, so it's nine hundred sixty six days. So long time. All right. Well, welcome back. We're glad to have you back, and. Um, that brings us to another to to the conclusion of another near memo. So please subscribe to the newsletter, tell your friends, and we'll be back with Marcus Tober to talk in more detail about the SEMrush study. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.